Listening to the Arts Report on CITR 101.9 FM, broadcasting from the unceded Musqueam territory of UBC's Point Grey campus. I'm your host, Jake Clark, and we're joined today by actor Daniel Kirali. Kirali? Yeah, 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 yeah. You got it, Jake. Yep. B- UBC BFA graduate, currently starring as Rooster in Align Entertainment's production of Annie, which will start on February 1st and go to the 16th. Daniel, how are you doing? I'm doing great, Jake. Thanks very much for having me. It's nice to, to have invited you into the lion's den. Yeah, exactly. It's good to be, good to be here. There's going to be, be a few religious references throughout. It's actually interesting because we're going to be reviewing Prayer for Owen Meany, the Pacific Theater production. And in Prayer for Owen Meany, uh, a couple of roles are played by my friend Riley, who's also a BFA grad and who performed with you in Edward II. That's correct. Yeah, I like love Riley like a brother he's great he's a, a great actor a great person we had many good times in the in the program and yeah it's good to, it's good to hear that he's doing well and doing and doing lots of stuff it's interesting because you played if I'm correct Lightborn in uh Edward II who's this very villainous character yeah it was a split character I played uh it was uh Gaveston and Lightborn so Gaveston for the first half Lightborn for the second half and the relation uh relationship between me and Riley was uh was you know quite intimate um, uh, Gavison is the gay lover of the of the king, secret mm-hmm. uh, gay lover of the king, and it, it was just a it was an interesting take and in something from from back in the era. Marlowe, a contemporary of Shakespeare, writing the play that you just don't see very much uh, from that era of play. So it was an, it was an interesting uh, challenge, and I enjoyed my time working with him. It was interesting to see that because. You know, Lightborn, obviously, the other side of Gaveston is this deeply villainous and frightening character in the play. And Rooster in Annie doesn't, not the same universe, I'm assuming. No, no. But also a pretty sleazy character. Oh, yeah. And I, honestly, like, there are some times when you, you think that there couldn't be a, a villain more sleazy than Rooster. Just some of the things that he that he thinks about doing is is just just devious but it's all in this you know in this musical that has all these sorts of uh, wonderful uh, wonderful messages and such and and he he has such a, a sort of easy New Orleans vibe about him even though he's from the New York area just uh, the song that he gets to sing easy street which is just so yeah. so bluesy it's just so cool to to sing so it's definitely a different a different take on a villain for sure I remember because this is a funny thing for me. Annie was the first show I was in okay. in my life. Yeah, I was. I don't know if this role is in this one or not. It's very minor. I was Bert Healy, the radio oh, announcer. Oh yes. 
Who plays that in this show? Uh, it's a, a man by the name of Angus. He's he's fabulous. Just love him to death. Uh, him and the Boylan sisters uh, are so funny. It's a shame they're not here today, actually. It would have been great for them to be on the radio doing some sort of radio it stuff. It would have been great to have Bert Healy on the radio no doing kidding, the Bert Healy. Right? It's your Occident Hour Smiles, and it's... I'm your broadcaster, Bert Healy. Exactly. I, I didn't like a bizarre Texan accent for reasons that <laughs> it was it was the 2000s. It made sense. It, it it works perfectly. That's the thing with Bert. You can do whatever you want with Bert. It's get like Angus on. Fairly minor, but very distinctive character. Oh yeah, yeah for sure. And I I've got to say this uh, too. I've noticed because this is not your first musical, no, either, by any chance. Because you've been in both uh, Hairspray back in the day and more recently Crybaby the musical. Yeah, for sure. So I did hair I did Hairspray with uh, Theater Under the Stars way back, and that must have been 2013. I get my dates right. Uh, and then, yeah, I did Crybaby with Awkward Stage Productions at the Fringe Festival, which was a, a different, another, a, yet another type of villain that I played. And then I've also uh, went back to Theater Under the Stars to work with them for Mary Poppins and Cinderella in the, the past two summers. So, it's, yeah, it's, it's been a good run of musical theater for me, which is exciting. Mary Poppins, was that the one at the Arts Club? No, 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 no. the one out at Theater Under the, the Stars. No, yeah. no, right. I was wondering it was the same show for a minute, but no, clearly not. Do you have just a John Waters preference at this point? Have you kind of got that vibe down? <laughs> no, I, I, I don't know. I, I, one of the things that I learned when I was here at, at, at UBC is just how many different styles of theater they are. And I grew up with musical theater. That was my, my ticket into the, into the theater world. And so it's, just, it's, a comfort, it's a comfort place for me. Uh, I know a lot of the people in the musical theater community, and I've just been lucky enough to land some of those roles. But uh, yeah, it's been interesting to, to look into some, some different types of theater when I was here and branching out into film and that sort of thing, just to you know, see what's out there, because there's so much theater happening in Vancouver. It's, it's quite, quite exciting. What kind of shows did you grow up with? What was the first one you sort of remember? Oh, good Lord. Uh, I grew up, uh, Annie is one of the first musicals that I ever saw, I, 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 or that I remember seeing, and we saw it in Vancouver. Uh, and it was, it was, I'm not going to say I remember a ton about the production itself, but I do remember sitting in the audience, watching the bright lights, watching the people move around on stage and going, that is a place that I want to be one day. Um, and, you know, it, turned into playing dress up in my room and it turned into where we are now and it's just uh it's just fantastic to get to work with such awesome people and to to do what i'm doing it's great so this production does kind of trace back to that sort of core enthusiasm yeah i think i think it captures that a bit and what's what's lovely about this production is that uh align entertainment who the production is with um uh, has a close connection with Lindbergh Academy, which is a, a, an academy for for young performers. Oh, I was going to say aviators. Yeah, <laughs> you would you would think, but no. Um, uh, yeah, young performers, and so there's there's a of course a large course of orphans in Annie, and so it's wonderful to just see this youthful uh, enthusiasm that I had growing up, uh, and turn back the clock and see it see what I might have looked like. Uh, back in the day. And the young performers that we have working with us are just extraordinary. They're just a fabulous, fabulous chorus, and they're doing such great work. That's interesting to, to hear uh, about. But there's, there's a lot of those youth initiatives in Vancouver, too. There's some fantastic talent going around. Well, as you said, there's a lot of, uh, a lot of opportunities in Vancouver to perform. Absolutely. Yeah. And I mean, Vancouver is, you know, it's Hollywood North for sure. There's a lot of film going on here and people think of Toronto more as being the where the Canadian theater, you know, takes its roots and that there's a large theater community in Toronto, no question about it. But mm -hmm. Vancouver has some of that, some of that uh, opportunities to do some some different things with theater to perform some smaller venues to do some some uh, some different types of work. And it's great to see kids really jumping in and and using theater and dance and all those sorts of art forms as part of their uh, their time growing up. I'd say that Toronto benefits from proximity to Stratford, too. Absolutely. Because there's, well, I mean, it's not to, I'm, I'm a, as a citizen of London, Ontario, I'll throw in for the Grand Theatre, which has brought the world Victor Garber and Ryan Gosling. <laughs> but there's, um, there's definitely, I think with Toronto, it's less concentrated in Toronto. It's the satellite community, whereas in Vancouver... There is this sort of sense of, well, we've had productions on here from, from Langley, from, well, there's a lot in Capilano, because Capilano University, so those are course, musical yeah. productions a lot of the time. 
And it really does vary. There's an interesting sort of communitarian sense of it. Absolutely. And Vancouver, the thing I love about Vancouver's theater community is that it's, you know, it's big enough that we have so many productions going on at the same time, but it's also small enough that you just, you see people and you get to know their work and you get to realize what, what incredible talent these people have in Vancouver. And there's people, you know, who, who have gone elsewhere uh, and done shows and done productions elsewhere, be that Toronto, be that in the States somewhere. And then they come back to Vancouver and they say, no, here is where I want to, you know, make home for myself. And there's enough theater uh, to support those talents and that we get to watch them is just extraordinary. It's always good to hear that, you know. It's a very uplifting thing. And there is, well, the variety we can speak to it, you know. There's there's a lot of that going on, I would say. I, I, I have to ask this because I usually do ask this to any actor because you've, you've been in quite a few shows and you've obviously had a chance to try your hand at a lot of the roles that are present to th- theater actors. And I'm wondering, what is your dream role and or your dream show? Oh, it's a tough question. Jake, that's a tough question. I, you know, every time that I see a different uh, role on stage, I'm like, oh, I want to play that role. I know Align Entertainment uh, uh, just finished their run of A uh, Christmas Story, and the uh, character of, of the father or the old man in that, in that story, I left the theater going, I have to play that someday. I have to sing those songs. I have to be that person. Uh, and, you know, just with every, with every good musical or good show that I see, I'm like, that that character, that the way that it was played, I need to do it. Um, I'm very, very lucky in that uh, I'll get to take on a show that really caught my attention uh, recently. Uh, in the summer, I'll be doing Newsies with Theatre Under the Stars, which I'm super, super excited about. Such a, a wonderful story uh, and uh, and really, really good uh, music and just a, a story of camaraderie that, I, that I'm very excited to be a part of. Um, so that's that's a, a bucket list item for sure that I'll I'll get to take off. But it's uh, yeah, in terms of in terms of roles, I can't say that one stands out right now. Right now, I'm really interested in Rooster. Right now, and just everything, every little thing about him and and what I can find with him because we're still you know a week a week about a week away from from opening the show, and there's that means there's a week left to find some stuff that I'm missing. So I'm I'm really curious about that. What have you been able to find? Is he in the original comic strip? Uh, I haven't. I haven't really gotten a sense of of him in the original comic strip. I I, I haven't done exhaustive research on the comic strip, mm-hmm. but I just he doesn't pop he doesn't pop to me when I you know you see just little snippets. I've, I haven't seen him in any, um, but uh, he's he's he is an interesting part of the plot because he's he's this everything everything goes wrong when he's around, but he's just he's such a fun loving person. He's 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 the type of person who just you know, life is one game after another to him, and he'll he's he's lost every single game that he's played, and yet he continues to play. He's an amoral hedonist. He, oh, absolutely. He he just he he's he's all about the next thing. When's the next con? What's the next thing? How big can we go this time? And it's uh, it's interesting to to play that because you have to play that this is the biggest thing that he's ever done. He's he's about to get uh, a, a large sum of money to take a kid away from from their parents their rightful parents or their their adopted parents and and he has to be so gung-ho that this is the only thing he ever wants to do but at the same time you have to know that once this is over once he you know if he gets caught and gets out of prison he'll be on to the next thing just like that it's kind of interesting to think about the sort of depression era grifter that sort of character because that kind of character is kind of hard to imagine outside of the depression mm-hmm. like the sting is a movie you ever you ever see the sting no i haven't i gotta are you adding things to my list it's Jake? really good <laughs> highly recommend that's a movie about depression era grifters with right. paul newman and robert redford if you like ragtime music it's the thing for you it kind of popularized scott joplin in i think the 70s is when it came out and it shows like these characters who well in the end like they do say like the one guy is an inveterate gambler, the Robert Redford's character in it. And he, they kind of, there's this point which he acknowledges is that even if he was able to make good, if he, even if he was able to land the giant con, I won't spoil the movie, but he wouldn't know what to do with it because he'd just blow the money anyway. Mm. So it's interesting to think of that kind of peripatetic lifestyle. For sure. And I think for, for Annie specifically, I mean, it is, it's, we're, we're in the, in the heat of the dirty thirties, everything's everything's shutting down around uh, around Warbucks, around Annie, around the orphanage. Everything's shutting down in this in this musical, and yet the the overwhelming sense is that it's going to be okay. There's you know the sun will come out tomorrow. It's it's the classic line, mm-hmm. and it, you know it it. it 
it sounds like it would be cheesy, but it really is. It all just comes from this idea of uh, what's what's most important. Is it the money, and can we find something more? And I think that the thing that uh, that separates Rooster and and Hannigan and Lily. Um, from the other characters is that the other characters all figure it out and Annie helps them to do that but Rooster, Lily and Hannigan never figure it out it's still about the money and at the end of the day it leads to their downfall it's always been about the money it's never been about the people and I think that um, you know a show coming out of coming into the new year it's it's nice to re- nice to remember what that what that is about but it's also just a different look at the 30s and like it's so down it's so it's so depressing the, the era they live in and yet the musical is so full of of hope and, and life well I mean, if you look around the there's a lot of things today that will remind you of the 1930s <laughs> uh in varying aspects of that i i, I come to think of it um the movie that they made a movie of it recently i want to say with jamie fox and uh mm-hmm. cameron diaz mm-hmm. cameron diaz is um she runs the orphanage the hannigan yes parent. yeah uh, and I I heard it wasn't very good, <laughs> and part of the reason why was that it takes it out of the, it takes it into the present day. Hmm. So there's a really weird tonal shift because there's a lot of things that happen in Annie that are really period specific. Yeah, yeah, and I mean but they I, have that universality. It's true. I and, and it, it, you always struggle with that when you try and take anything out of period, right? Mm-hmm. I mean Shakespeare is the one that's been able to you're able to do the most effectively. Some some somehow they're able to transport those pieces from period to period and it, it makes sense but even with Shakespeare you run into some things where they put it in a period and you're like that doesn't make any sense you can't do that he set the tempest in <laughs> Nazi Germany like it you know and it, it, there's those there's things like that that's I think, from Slings and Arrows speaking of Stratford <laughs> I think that Annie in particular is is just I don't know there's something there's something about the New York vibe there's something about Annie the orphan growing up as an orphan in New York in the 30s that really contributes to what she's become because Annie's not your lovable, sweet-to-everyone kind of hero. She's not. She's actually, she has a very, very rough edge about her. She has a, she'll cut through. She does not, she's not nice to Miss Hannigan because Miss Hannigan is not nice to her. She is wary of everything that goes on about her. There's a, a moment where she gets a coat and then she gets asked if, the butler asks if she if they can take her coat and she says i'm going to get it back right like it's not it's not a she's not just accepting of everything and i think that th- it's it's the 30s it's the orphanage it's all of that that's made her that way and it and it because it's set that way you can understand her plight and you can understand where she's coming from and our our annie cameron does this absolutely beautifully to capture the different edges of annie uh, which are really really important to the show and i think yeah the period is helpful to to Get those rough edges some some context. Kind of makes sense then with Jay Z sampling Hard Knock Life. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so a show that is set in New York in the 1930s translates, you'd say, pretty damn well to Vancouver in 2019. I think so. I think there's there's a lot of similarities. I mean, there's just you know, the, the thing about Annie is that the, the overall message is, is never going to get old. I mean, just this 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 sense of of hope and that everything's is going to be okay but that there's work to be done it's not handed to anyone on a silver platter it's not that and it's not that having money is is everyone's downfall that's not the that's not the message either it's just that you know at the end of the day it comes down to uh where you're going to put your effort in where are you going to um to to spend your time where are you going to spend your money and how are you going to treat the people that are around you? At some point, uh, Warbucks says, you know, I I made a promise to myself that I didn't have to be nice to anyone on the way up as long as I wasn't coming back down again. And now I've changed my mind because you never know when you're going to end up on your way down again, right? And that's just that's just the way that, that life is and always will be is that, you know, it's the relationships that you make that will carry you through and... It's a, a good reminder going into the new year, and I, th- I think that it's it's nice to be a part of, and it's be nice for people to see. There you are. New year, new deal. Either way, the sun will come out tomorrow. <laughs> and you can check that out. Where and when can we check that out? Uh, so, again, it runs at uh, the Michael J. Fox Theater in Burnaby, uh, and it runs from the 1st of February to the 16th of February. Uh, you can get tickets in a, in a variety of places. Uh, the easiest way is probably just to go to uh, Align Entertainment, uh, uh, you can Google them, uh, Annie at Align Entertainment, or you, I think it's, I believe it's uh, alignentertainment.ca. Um, 
there's a link on my website, uh, www.danielcorelli.com. There's a, a little bar there that has the Annie symbol. If you click on that, I'll take you to the ticket you page. You have a fantastic website, by the way. Thank you. Thank you very much. I've, I've, I got a lot of help. I got, got some help from, from Elizabeth Hughes in, in creating that, and it was, it was a fun, uh, fun experience. But, yeah, it's, it's nice to have. So. Well, that was a fun experience, and this seems like it's definitely going to be one. Absolutely. Yeah, it's, it's going to be a great experience, uh, family-friendly experience, but lots for the adults as well. It's just an all-around good musical, a classic, and come out and see if you can. All right. Daniel, it was terrific to have you in the studio. Thanks so much, Jake. Break a leg. Thank you very much. Great talking to you. We're going to have a quick PSA break, and then when we return, uh, we will have some reviews for you, including Pacific Theater's Prayer for Owen Meany, uh, Fire Hall's uh, Circle Game, and uh, a third one. Uh, this has been The Arts Report. I'm still Jake Clark, and uh, a word from our sponsor. Well, it's just a, a, a publication you really should pick out, but I wish they were a sponsor. They're great people. You know what's better than reading a great magazine? Reading a great magazine that also helps you fight poverty. Megaphone Magazine is sold by homeless and low-income vendors on the streets of Vancouver and Victoria. Vendors buy magazines for 75 cents and sell them for $2. It's flexible, low-barrier work for people who may not have access to traditional jobs. Download the Megaphone app to find vendors and buy the magazine even when you don't have change. You're in luck because Unseated Airwaves talks about... Allow me to tell you about Unseated Airwaves. What's that? Isn't that some kind of indigenous radio show? It sure is. Tell me, are you down for decolonization? What? I certainly wish I could hear about indigenous issues, people, and events on the radio. You're in luck because Unseated Airwaves talks about all these things and more every Monday morning at 11. Music from indigenous artists and coverage of all the hot happenings in indigenous art and entertainment. On CITR 101.9 FM. Oh wow, and they broadcast all this from the traditional, ancestral, and unceded territory of the Musqueam people? Find out for yourself, Monday mornings at 11, or find episodes online at citr.ca. Today we're joined in the studio by the Cedar Program Youth. Where you are at? And we're back. Uh, I'm still Jake Clark. Joining us in studio are our uh, honored correspondent. I, I, I run out of adjectives. Like I run out of steam on adjectives for some reason. Um, which, fabulous. Yeah, our fabulous correspondents, uh, Margarita Galper and Leah Siegel. Good job. Yes. Woo. You got it. Long-term memory. Yeah. It's all right. So, last show we had a weird tangent about religion. Let's talk about that. No, let's not. Well, okay, so it's going to be hard to avoid a little bit because this, um, let's start off with Prayer for Owen Meany. Okay. So, um, Ileana has read the book. Uh, I have not. Mm. So, I'm at a slight disadvantage here. The novel's written by John Irving, a guy who I am familiar with. Uh, and John Irving's a, 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 I would say, unbad writer. Wow. What does uh, that mean? <laughs> it means that he has a couple of good books to him. Uh, he had a definite period that is better than uh, others, including his current period of work, I would say. Um, if either of you guys have seen the movie Cider House Rules? Nope. Uh, what about The World According to Garb? Nope. Okay, so those are the two books of him that I would of his that I would kind of recommend. Uh his films have been adapted into film pretty... His books have been adapted into yeah. film pretty successfully. Cider House Rules had Tobey Maguire and Anthony Hopkins. It's a oh. story about, essentially, an abortionist named Wilbur Larch in... I think it is around the 30s. Uh, it's an interesting book. Um, and then The World According to Garp has one scene, which I think I referenced last show, which will overshadow anything else I will say about it. Put simply, either the zaniest or most horrifying blowjob scene ever put in... Ever put 
um, on the well, not on the page. No, I've read enough William S. Burroughs to know that isn't true, but possibly on <laughs> film. Uh, it's just worth you know, worth checking out. Uh, another one of his books that is kind of less known is The Water Method Man, which is about this inveterate coward who undertakes a water method, which is one of three possible ways to deal with uh, a complicated urinary tract okay. because he's too cowardly for surgery. And so he opts to do something he has to do all of the time, but will cause him less pain. So it's inconvenient and it's problematic, but he has no tolerance to pain. So that's what he ends up doing. It's actually a rather clever book. Uh, The thing about John Irving is that he is one of those authors who you could play bingo with his work. You know how with Wes Anderson, you could play bingo like Bill Murray, 60s Britpop, things like that. And you could Uh, probably do it pretty easily. It's like a little formulaic. Not formulaic necessarily, but, like, there's the same tropes within it. There's the same identifiable figures. Mm. And for John Irving, those things are, like, bears, Vienna, and erectile dysfunction. What? <laughs> um, so random. And uh, uh, Prayer for Owen Meany only really has one of those, at least in the, the thing I read, which was interesting. So Prayer for Owen Meany, as uh, we know from Ian Farthing's interview last show, begins with an evocative line, um, and... I, I will say this about prayer for Owen Meany. Um, it is, it is a very, in, in, uh, how do we put this? The title role was considered unactable by a lot of people, in, including Ron Reed, the artistic director unactable. of Unactable, as in it's probably not conveyable onto the stage. Um, it's actually, it is actable. I would say this is, is actually acted, I would say, fairly well by Chris Lamb. Now, there are two things that Owen kind of embodies. One, he's very small, and they do that as much as they can with blocking. Uh, That doesn't come across, but his voice sounds like a mixture of Mickey Mouse and a carnival barker. In the book, he's in all caps, everything he says. Oh, that would be kind of... I feel like I wouldn't enjoy reading that. Uh, It's it's weird to read. It's not as off-putting to see in performance as... I thought again. I would credit that. I would credit that with Lamb's abilities as an actor. There are a couple points where it's really hard on the old eardrums because he gives out with an earth-shattering scream. Um, but on the whole, uh, the character is very interesting because the character is a very complex character. That's the impression I got from this, and a very interesting one because he's a character who believes his life is predestined. He believes that he will that he's God's instrument, and that uh, he knows the date of his death due to visions. And it turns out that he does. Hmm. Uh, But there's a lot of conversations here about faith. And the one thing, the thing I find oddly unconvincing about it is that it did not really uh, convince me the point, the narrator of the narrator's point, which is that the narrator became a Christian because of Owen Meany. Hmm. I can understand this book being affecting if you've been inculcated with these values, but if you haven't, I feel like it would kind of fall on deaf ears. Owen Meany, to his credit, is a very articulate and intelligent character, and his demeanor offsets that, but he is very clever, and he is very consistent throughout. And uh, one thing, he delivers a speech in it, because he joins the army. This is Vietnam era. And he gives a speech uh, talking about oversimplification, and he talks about seeing televangelists and saying, that's the next president. Did I mention this was written during the, the Reagan administration? So there's there's prescient there. Yeah, well, there's a lot of it was accurate at the time, and it has not ceased to be. And the oversimplification complaint that Owen makes is, I think, very valid uh, in a lot of respects. There's a lot that can be gained from this, I think. And there's, I think that outside of a faith narrative, which is where I think that a lot of his points are still valid, because as a sociological narrative, and certainly this is written from John Irving's perspective as a baby boomer who went through these touchstones like Kennedy and so Kennedy, the Vietnam War. Like a lot of these things were extremely real to the largest generation in history. And apropos of that, yeah, the, this, this play has credence and I'd say the book has credence too. Uh, because there are a lot of people who maybe have some contempt for a lot of boomer culture manufacturers sort of eulogizing these figures to the point of mythicalizing them that might be a little grating uh now more so than when the novel was written but i think it's worth seeing the play is worth seeing probably i assume if you've read the book it's worth seeing because the play is not in and of itself bad 
And so as an adaptation, it's an interesting comparison. Uh, it is, I, I do want to say that the Kurt, that Chris Lamb's performance, I would say is good, but there are a lot of hard points with his voice. Um, and he, taking that into account is probably necessary. But all in all, I would say it was a it was a fine play, and it was a good bit of effort. I mentioned my friend Riley's in it, and he actually has a rather interesting scene as this um, very aggressive and violent, uh, that's redundant, this very aggressive teenager who confronts Owen at one point and plays actually quite an important part in the finale of his story. Uh, I'll leave it to you to see how that happens, but it's a very uh, visceral moment. Uh, Yes, I, so I believe that the Prayer for Owen Meany is actually a pretty good uh, look at what Pacific's doing, and I think it's an interesting start to the year, certainly. That goes until, uh, I believe, the 9th of February, and yeah, yeah, I, I, I would conditionally recommend it. Yeah. <laughs> I, so you you say that Owen's, Owen Meany's a little bit of a, a complex character. Would you say he's sympathetic? Yes, very yeah. much so. Okay. Owen Meany is, by and large, the smartest person in the room for most of the book. That is very definitely by design. Uh, he's the, and I think the the fact that he is such a parodic and weird character prevents him from being a Mary Sue, and that alone. Because he is extremely right, and he's right with the benefit of hindsight that would have been available to John Irving as he was writing the book. Huh. So that's worth noting, especially, I think, if you've... Uh, if you've read the book. Um, moving on to UBC Theater. <laughs> um, speaking of religion, this play was very Catholic. Really? I'm talking about Lion in the Streets. Street? Yeah. Um, it was interesting how, because there is there are scenes with the Catholic priest and there are scenes in and around it, but there's a lot of stuff in it that is very recognizable. It's set in Toronto, and it's very recognizable to the... I, the Catholic community of the Midwest and Eastern Seaboard area. A lot of stuff there, very recognizable, like in a bizarrely acute way. Like what? Like uh, the the references, like a lot of the references to Sunday school are really acute there. A lot of the, even the way the characters dress, hmm. I think a lot. You see a lot of young guys wearing polo shirts with a white undershirt. Hmm. That is guy in his 20s who goes to mass alone, uniform. Okay, maybe I'm overgeneralizing a little bit, but it's mm-hmm. I have an N of more than one. Um, and the play itself, so uh, Sophia here, uh, who, who came in here, um, she's fantastic in it, by the way. So she plays the ghost of this murdered uh, Filipina girl. And it's interesting, her role in the narrative, because her role is as an observer a lot of the time, because only some people can see her. Mm. And it's almost it's it's a journey really between these stories that are variably connected mm-hmm. and what it does a very good job what what really comes across is the community that not necessarily created this murder that did do that but also the the area in which this took place not the immediate not the immediate effect it's not like the killing uh, the, the Rosie Larson one, not the Stanley Kubrick one. Uh, Rosie Larson was the character, Stanley Kubrick was the creator. It doesn't go into everyone's reaction to the killing. It's Im- probably implied that a lot of people aren't even aware of it or are only tangentially aware of it. But it's really illustrative of where and when this happened. This, this, the way you describe it, this almost reminds me of stories like Our Town and the Lovely Bones. You know? The Lovely Bones, yeah. Um, the Lovely Bones, definitely. Uh, Our Town, kind of. Thornton Wilder? Well, you know what? I'm, I'm saying that. It's been probably over a decade since I've seen that play. So I just remember that there's a person who is dead and is looking back at the community from which she came. Lovely Bones. That's Lovely Bones. Oh, no, no, no. Our Town, too. No, Our, our Town. Um, I haven't read Our Town in a while. I've never seen it. Okay, well, there makes two of us. Um, I mean, well, I've seen it, but it's been a while. What's the Thornton Wilder play? He wrote The Matchmaker. He did indeed. Which uh, you're probably going to be seeing. So that's, you know, The Matchmaker's great, by the way. I'm looking really forward to talking about that one. I saw that one at Stratford when I was a little younger, and it was delightful. (laughs) It's it's, it's a really fun play. Uh, Lion in the Streets, I would not call a fun play. It is extremely interesting, and it is amazingly put together. This is, I would say, one of the most competent play. Like, U- UBC Theater um, has uh, had, like, a good track record for 
like is a for effort i'd say all of the time if yeah no and there's there is a really arresting performance in it that i can't really give away but it is a show-stopping performance for one of these vignettes and it is really i think it's also very germane to uh this was on uh, another one of our shows but i think very germane to the debate around brian cranston uh portraying a uh, a disabled individual yes yeah that is very uh very relevant i would say to uh to this uh <laughs> to the um to the situation in in the play there is again there are some dark moments in this there really are and uh they the, what is sown the seeds in the second act bloom into violence the seeds in the first act bloom into violence in the second hmm. and it is it is an incredible gear shift i really do recommend seeing it but you need to it is not an upbeat play let's say it really goes to some incredibly dark places. And it does that with a plum. It does it very well. But it is it, it, it can be a tough sit. And there's uh, extreme trigger warning for domestic violence. Uh, oh, yeah. 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 <laughs> there's, yeah. Yeah. There's, there's not a whole else you can really say about it. There's a lot to it. Sounds intense. Yeah, it is. Uh, that's that's a good word for it. It was quite intense. It's not... It, the thing is that it is fascinatingly done. It is a really amazingly put together and performed play. And I think that you need, you need that to, to bring the material across. Can I ask about the title? The Lion in the Street. So the lion is... It's a metaphor throughout the play. Uh-huh. And the lion is the murderer. <sighs> uh, I would well, I say... I just gave it a spoiler alert. God. The murderer is not a lion. That would, be, some that would be a twist. <laughs> that would be that would be an extremely dark twist. It's like, well, it turns out she was mauled by a lion. <laughs> like, just at the end of it, you know the story of Daniel. Well, imagine that, but you know, not. Speaking of Daniel, before the show, I was talking to Daniel. I was like, you know, I feel like there's more to this title, like lying in the streets, something in the sheets. I, I you know, I don't know. Maybe it was just me. <laughs> I, I am going to say like... cracking that joke after the show is probably not in good order. Oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> I you haven't seen it... the show? I don't No. Okay. Well, I, I, I take it back, though. I feel bad now. Hmm. What do you mean? Like lying in the streets, tabby cat in the sheets or something? <laughs> yes. For me, it gave me like a clear feeling of uh, like this... Um, danger in a safe place that it's supposed to be safe yeah i don't know well there's um I, you can't really spoil the murderer's identity because he's mm. not a character throughout mm. but the he has the last vignette and his life story is kind of told at least what would make him a murderer and it really is the story of an abused person who becomes a sociopath mm-hmm. um which is a perfect example of an explanation, but not an excuse. And that's what the play does uh, for a lot of these behaviors. There's honestly the one character who I believe has no sympathetic uh, onus is this character who commits horrific domestic violence. That may be me uh, inferring that because I cannot have sympathy for people who abuse those they love. When Extentacion died, I did not feel a shred of sympathy and I wished it took longer. Uh, so that was something... You know, that, that's something I think about a bit in reference to this, but it is, again, it's deeply illustrative of a lot of things, and it's a very rich play in that respect. Mm. Woo! <laughs> I feel like we want to do something more cheerful. Uh, and Circle <laughs> Game will be on after these messages. Uh, yeah, but... I want to hear about Circle Game. Circle Game was quite interesting, and you will hear about it, as will you, in, uh, in, in a brief series of moments. Just a moment, let me figure out how technology works. How do they let me keep this... Is, uh, is there a problem, officer? Yes, you've gotten a noise complaint! <laughs> Fight the power and listen to the brand new podcast from CITR 101.9 FM, Noise Complaint. Episodes will be released every Friday starting January 18th with performances and interviews from some of your favorite local bands. Kamikaze Nurse, 
inside. Princess Apparently, Fake Fruit, and so many more. Subscribe to Noise Complaint on iTunes or download from CITR.ca starting January 18th. of CITR and Discorder, but are you a true friend? Get a Friends of CITR and Discorder card for $20 for discounts in Hastings Sunrise at Beat Street Records, Bomber Brewing, Community Vintage and Thrift, Community Thrift and Vintage, Pandora's Box Rehearsal Studios, Red Cat Records, and Selectors Records. And we're back. And we actually have a surprise drop it. Who are we kidding? We we timed this. Is Luak fresh from the art show? I was gonna do. I was I was gonna like sing something to the tune of Blink 182's "Girl at the Rock Show," but I don't really like Blink 182, so I kind of <laughs> aborted the plan. Hi guys. <laughs> um, yeah. So I just came back from the visual uh, visual art undergraduate exhibition that's happening at the Auden. Um, Art Center, mm-hmm. which is right across from Mercante, if you know where Mercante is. If you don't, it's University Boulevard. Is that what it's called? Yeah, it's like uh, by the, the the one block down from the fountain, yeah. one block one be- block down towards the-, the ocean, one block <laughs> west of the fountain. Yeah, use Google Maps. Yeah, it, it's it's really nice. So it's a pretty small gallery, but it has some pretty cool stuff. Um, what I really like about this exhibition, well, first, what frustrated me a little bit is that we know that these are all undergrad student projects from visual arts classes, but the thing is they didn't put any like description or the assignment because I'm always curious to know, like, what was the assignment for this piece to come out of that? You know, like, what is, was it like? Like, maybe I want to try to do something like that too. Maybe where does it take me differently from where it takes someone else? But it has some really interesting work. Um, it actually has 82 pieces, so it's a pretty small gallery with 82 pieces, so you can imagine that the walls are pretty crowded, um, but at the same time, it's really worthwhile, and it, um, I only spent about 40 minutes in there, and I'm probably going to go back there um, tomorrow or the day after just to spend some more time in there actually admiring the works, and some of the works, on the, they're mostly... Um, they're either oh okay so it's from many different visual arts courses including photography printmaking which is really cool if you don't know uh what -hmm. printmaking is it's basically when you carve out stuff woodcuts yeah yeah you so you carve out the wood you put the paint on the wood and then you press it onto a paper uh so ubc has printmaking classes which are really cool and some really cool art came out of that um there's also just standard paintings drawings and there's some journaling that goes on as well, which was I found pretty interesting. And there are some conceptual art projects, like um, one of the pieces is uh, a student's collected trash glued onto this huge piece of cardboard, and it's on the wall. So it's really interesting to see these things out of place. Um, uh, really cool exhibition. Really recommend go- going there. It's only until February 15th, so make sure to... It's also free, so make sure to stop by if you have, I don't know, 30 minutes between classes. Um, it's, it's To me, it's really refreshing to see. As a visual arts... like I take a lot of visual arts cor- courses, although that's not my major. Uh, and it's really, really refreshing and so reassuring to see that uh, undergraduates' arts on a gallery in a gallery space because usually undergrads are seen as like oh they're undergrads there's like they're just students they're starting out now they don't know where they are going I mean, they're kind of <laughs> and like yeah maybe that's true i probably don't know where i'm going i probably don't have any idea where i'm gonna end up but that doesn't mean that what i'm making now is not valid you know that should be the new slogan for general <laughs> arts by the way uh that that would actually help a lot yeah for life yeah like (laughs) (laughs) i am really glad that we could bring this up though because you know who was trained as a painter who joni mitchell true (laughs) and she says she's firstly an artist and only secondly a musician which i find very interesting because having seen circle game they have a clip of her in concert making a joke about vincent van gogh 
So, you know, nobody asked Vincent Van Gogh, hey, paint it again, man. <laughs> About it. And I'm like, yeah, there's, there's a lot of reasons you wouldn't have asked Vincent Van Gogh that. Namely, because his face was asymmetrical and he was having hallucination. Okay, maybe not a great person to take pot shots at. Brilliant artist. Um, Troubled man. So Circle Game was at Fire Hall Art Center's inaugural production. Uh, it is actually very similar to Chelsea Hotel. Ooh, nice. <laughs> Chelsea yeah. Hotel was super fun, even though I didn't know any songs. <laughs> which was kind of interesting to me, because I've listened to one Joni Mitchell album. That's Blue, which is an essential album. It's a really beautiful album. Mm-hmm. Um and it's exactly that. It's basically a jukebox opera because there's no dialogue. It's all singing. There's no not really a plot. Um, there's some interpretive dance to it. There's a, It is basically the music performing Olympics because there's a lot of instrument <laughs> changes. Um, a whole lot of it ends with a really good three guitar with a really good three guitar harmony on Big Yellow Taxi. Really good. Kind of misguided for the song, but really good. Um, they really do justice. Uh, the cast of the production is really good at doing justice. Uh, the cast of the production, by the way, is Kimmy Choi, David Z. Cohen, Rowan Kahn, Scott Perry, Adriana Ravalli, and Sarah Vickrook. Uh, they all re- do justice really well to, uh, some of the beautiful lines. I think my favorite line in Jody Mitchell is, I could drink a case of you, darling, and still be on my feet. I think it's a beautiful line. Mm. Um, there are, there one of the things that I found really interesting, this is if you were at all compelled by our re- review of Chelsea Hotel or if you saw Chelsea Hotel, uh, I would say worth seeing because it's a it's a jukebox opera about a lyrically talented acoustic Canadian musician who was very talented, who was well known in the 70s. We have a lot of those. <laughs> Leonard Cohen, Joni Mitchell, Buffy St. Marie, Neil Young. Oh, um, actually, come to think about it, Neil Young. Is a Canadian trend then, like having talented artists in the 70s and, you know. Yeah, well, we've had a lot of really great. I was thinking about Neil Young because actually in the the bumper music for the show, so before uh, the show and during the intermission, there's some of the greatest hits of that period. And there were some interesting ones there. There's like uh, Looking Out My Back Door, Creedence Clearwater Revival, which is just a great song. Uh, there's Moon Dance by Van Morrison, who I am really sure Ed Sheeran is trying to get a revival. I hope so. That would be great really like Van Morrison. Um, but there was also Keep on Rockin' in the Free World by Neil Young. You guys know where the fire... You guys... Well, Lua, you know this. The Fire Hall Center is... In Chinatown? Well, East Hastings, really. Like, well, it's like, oh, right, right, right. Cause, yeah. Yeah, because like, the way... Because when I went there, I got a car to go, and I parked in Chinatown, and then I walked over there. Yeah, I remember. And I was almost late, but I ran, so... <laughs> I, I appreciate that. That's That's why we have the ethic... <laughs> but I think the thing about uh, Keep on Rockin' in the Free World is that there's um, uh, the second verse of Keep on Rockin' in the Free World, which is what happens when a hippie gets angry. Um, and it's really compelling because Neil Young is, one, one of the greatest musicians of the past century. And two, Neil Young has a lot of reason in his life to feel especially resentful of heroin. I, 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 I mean, it, it's... I don't even know how to like how to respond to that <laughs> sentence because he's resentful of heroin. Like, maybe he just shouldn't have done it in the first place. He like, didn't do it. He oh, killed okay. two of his friends. Oh, yeah, okay. Who his friends <laughs> needle in the damage done. Yeah, needle in the damage done, and then because needle in the damage done is a very mournful song, whereas keep on rocking in the free world, which much like Leonard Cohen's Democracy is often mistaken as a patriotic song, it's really not, because. It's the lyrics are now, she put the kid away and she's gonna get a hit. There's one more kid that'll never go to school, never get to fall in love, and never get to be cool. Mm. Keep on rocking in the free world. Yeah. Almost on pitch. And then you step into East East Hastings and you see that song in practice. Mm. Wow. Because there's a part of East Hastings that is basically the flea market for the poor and addicted. Yeah, yeah. With the hotels and stuff. Yeah, well, it's 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 a part of, and it's a really. There was I remember reading this is that there was a certain point where a lot of the time the policemen in a lot of these provincial towns would, when they arrested people for vagrancy, which is being homeless essentially, they would give them bus fare and get them on a bus to Vancouver. Wait, where? 
they would they would give them bus fare and say go to Vancouver. Where where would they be originally? Yeah. Wherever. Wherever. From like from I I don't think they'd send them cross country, but at least as far as Ontario. Yeah, I Goodness. heard about that too. It's it, kind of a West Coast thing. Just homeless people. I heard there. about this in reference to Thunder Bay, so I'm assuming. <laughs> I mean, uh, Thunder Bay is pretty far away from everything. So when Thunder Bay is shipping things out, like that's a con- that's a concerted effort right there. Mm. So that was interesting to think of in the context of Circle Game. Uh, Jake, I have a question. So I thought yeah. this is a Joni Mitchell, but they were playing... They weren't on... playing it. That was played on the PA in the intermission. Oh. It just stuck in my mind because it's a really, really accurate song. Yeah. Um, I yeah. that was intentional then. Pro- oh, yes, almost certainly. There's... You think so? A lot of the time people don't even listen to the lyrics of a song just like... You know, the hook, and that's it. It's hard to ignore with Keep On Rockin' in the Free World, I think, because uh, I'll play the song afterward, but there's, like, the second verse really does stick in your head because it is a genuine... It's a genuinely very angry song, like, in a way you don't expect from someone as extremely... as aggressively laid back as Neil Young. (laughs) Aggressively laid back. I've read his book. He seems like... (laughs) If you can live near David Crosby for a lot of time and never once attempt to strangle him... I think you've probably hit, like, a certain threshold of pacifist credibility. (laughs) There's a... There's there's a lot to that that I find really delightful. They did play, though, some... They played some of the band. Like, there's a lot of stuff. Like, there's a few... There's a lot of these shows I think you could do. You could do Buffy St. Marie. You could do something with the band or Robbie Robertson, you know? Could you... Would would you recommend going to this if you aren't necessarily, like, a Joni Mitchell fan? Or is this... I mean, this sounds like something that's, like, specially made for them, you know? Well, it was interesting because when we saw Chelsea Hotel, you didn't know any of the songs. I I knew Hallelujah. Yeah, that's <laughs> that true. was it, and I was waiting for it, and it only came in the second act, like right at the end. I was like, "Where is it? That's like one song I know it has to play." Like, <laughs> is please. this Leonard Cohen? Yeah, um, and it was the exact same thing in this one with Big Yellow Taxi, which I think is Joni Mitchell's best known song. It because like Hallelujah, it ended the show. Hmm. Um, I would say I haven't listened to a lot of Joni Mitchell. I would say that. You might be kind of the way this is performed is interesting because in Chelsea Hotel the songs were fairly sequential. Yeah, and there there was a there wasn't really dialogue, but there was like mm-hmm. one line or like but no or something like that, like mm-hmm. an exclamation to like connect those. Mm-hmm. And it was kind of a narrative, but not really. There was really not a not a full plot, but you could get get the sense of a story where it's like this writer. Like locks himself into the Chelsea Hotel and like is thinking about all the women he's loved, and mm-hmm. that's kind of more or less the story that they followed. It's interesting because the way it's staged does bring out usually a common thread in Leonard Cohen songs, which really do play to that archetype. And I would say Joni Mitchell as well uh, with this one. The, the uh, plot of this, I guess, is kind of about a series of failed relationships. Kind of. One thing I do realize watching this is that, holy God, Joni Mitchell has been influential. Mm. Because a lot of people from, like, her contemporaries, like Buffy St. Marie, up to and including, like, Taylor Swift, Jewel, and a million other coffee shop folk singer acts are kind of standing in her shadow. Mm. And it's interesting because Joni Mitchell's singing style is actually really hard to emulate. I have a friend of mine who plays classical guitar, and he said that when they map out like they do the notation for her melody lines it's actually really difficult to sing properly she has a crazy range and she goes yeah. she goes like uh, into very big intervals she has amazing control mm-hmm. she's one of the best vocalists for sure i wanted to say like i'm a total like johnny mitchell fan and i don't know if i could if i could enjoy hearing her songs performed by somebody else because it's so intertwined for me mm-hmm. like her voice doing that, those melodies how did that feel? Like uh, I don't know if you listened to one of one of the songs from Blue performed by somebody else. Was that weird? Um, it's interesting uh, again to compare to Leonard Cohen because Leonard Cohen's songs, I think, he was a distinctive vocalist, but a lot of his songs do do actually do rather well by covers. Mm. Uh, Hallelujah is an exceptional example because Hallelujah is kind of like King of the Road in that people can cover it and it's indicative if it's covered well. Mm-hmm. It really is. Uh, like Jeff Buckley, Jeff for example. Or even Ed Sheeran did an okay version of Hallelujah. Like, there is there is yeah. a way to do Hallelujah right and a way to do it wrong. I should check it out. Yeah, it's, it's like how everyone from Dean Martin to Rufus Wainwright has covered King of the Road. Uh, with Joni Mitchell, I don't think that equivalency exists as much because of how distinctive... She's so unique. Yeah, and, and it's not that Leonard Cohen isn't a distinctive vocalist. It's that 
a lot of the way, and I think this is partially the way the songs are recorded as well, because she re- recorded her songs a lot more like, there were literally no other musicians when she recorded mm-hmm. Blue. Her tracks were recorded and then overdubbed. She's with... like the classic singer-songwriter mm-hmm. in LA. And, and again, Leonard Cohen did that as well. But I would say that the difference between uh, the two is that the way she puts over a song is really distinctive. And a lot of the versions, are a lot of the songs are, in and of themselves... I would say that the the lyrical conventions therein have been imitated by so many people because I think with especially with the archetype of like coffee shop folk singers, there's been so many people trying to be Joni Mitchell and failing that it's impossible not to see uh, performances that are covering Joni Mitchell as part of that. Does that make sense? I feel that, yeah. Although I find it hard that you mm-hmm. call her <laughs> coffee shop Coffee shop singer. Well, no, that's where we, that's where she started out. Hell, I interviewed Sola Fiedler uh, last year, and she ran coffee shops in Toronto. And among the people who played at her coffee shops was a young Joni Mitchell. Yeah, but that was like you know everybody has to start somewhere. I don't know. I see like listening to her as like a spiritual experience. So <laughs> that's just me. <laughs> okay, I'd be really interested to hear your opinion on this on this musical then, because it is an effort. It is. But it does transform them into show tunes a lot of the time. And is there 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 is a plot line too? Very vaguely. It sounds like they're trying to connect the plot line by the themes of the song, huh. like chronologically building it in some way. About as much as there was in Chelsea Hotel, it was more like yeah. themes. But that's the thing with the jukebox musicals. That's usually what happens to them because either you go do something like Moulin Rouge, where you actually get songs from like a bunch of different artists, or you make medleys and like kind of make them your own ish. Mm-hmm kind of thing and and then it becomes part of the story or if you're going to choose like one artist and do an entire thing about that artist or like with songs from that artist like there's really not easily a story to do about it it's like the only musical i can think that is like one artist that really works but they also change the lyrics every once in a while is mamma mia yeah uh that's it's all abba but the like for some like um, Our Last Summer, they changed some of the lyrics. Um, and what else? They changed some of the lyrics. What's the, the name of the game? Too. What? Across the Universe. Yeah, oh, there's Across the, the Universe, oh, right? Yeah. But then again, Across the Universe, the plot is also very mm. iffy. Yeah. It's not It's not <laughs> a very concrete. Like, what? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> what iffy, iffy and <laughs> mind bogglingly <laughs> surreal. Yeah. <laughs> But like, I mean, that kind of fits with the Beatles. Like, yeah. <laughs> See? When Bono shows up and talks about <laughs> masturbating alligators, I feel like that's where it jumps the line a little bit. Like, it's like, there was continuity, but let's do acid with Ken Kesey, which I'm pretty sure was a viable option for a distressing number of people in the 1960s. <laughs> Including Neil Cassidy. Actually, no, Neil Cassidy said, let's do downers with Ken Kesey. And then he died. Uh, (laughs) But Across the Universe would be an interesting example, too, because it's sort of in the same milieu. Because Joni Mitchell's songs definitely reflect the 60s and 70s quite significantly. And uh, The Fiddle for a Drum. Uh, The Fiddle and the Drum, I think, is the name of the song. That song's about war and about changing your attitude on war. Interesting to think of in Light of Prayer for Omini, actually. That was one the actors at the end said was actually quite relevant to them and one that was very important to put over correctly. Um, apropos of putting it over, another thing occurred to me. There's a couple of points where like people will do the solo versions, and that's where the difference really does come out because one sure. male impression of Joni Mitchell is distressingly like Jason Mraz in this context. Not sure if that's true in general, but it was true in terms of this show quite a great deal. Is that a good or a bad thing? Well, jazz and folk influence. I think that um, Jason Mraz is not as unequivocally enjoyed, unequivocally enjoyed as Joni Mitchell, and I would say there's a good reason for that. I don't dislike Jason Mraz. I think he's pretty entertaining, and the influ- the confluence of folk and jazz, and his enter the entertaining entertainingness of him as a live act. Yeah, I get it. Jason Mraz has also done a lot more embarrassing things than Joni Mitchell probably has the capacity ever to do. <laughs> what do you mean, what has Jason Mraz done? Because now I'm curious. <laughs> I will uh, refer you to the song Might As Well Dance, uh, which is just, I, I can't say this hard enough. And for Jason Mraz, this is hard to outdo, but it is an impossibly lame song. <laughs> and uh, th- there are things like that. Like Jason Mraz is uh, actually a really good example of this same sort of trend because he's kind of a new age singer. 
And that's a genre that if Joni, I don't know if she's really part of it because I don't know if you'd say it, but she's definitely associated with it. And she almost certainly helped create it in terms of having international appeal. Hmm. So again, her her shadow stretches long. And that's one thing the show communicates really well Hmm. is that Joni Mitchell has over the course of her career been, if not the best at something, then very close to it. And she was able to do that for a very iconic point, a very iconic moment too. True. So yeah, I would say check it. It's it's worth checking out. But if you, I, I actually really don't know how to to say that in terms of its uh, its relation to the songs because I honestly don't think I've listened to enough Joni Mitchell. Hmm. Regardless, you should definitely listen to Joni Mitchell's Blue. Definitely. <laughs> Can we agree on that? Yes. Would you recommend the show just like on its own? Just on its own. Um. I kind of preferred Chelsea Hotel, I would say. Uh, one thing about the present presentation of this show is that the songs kind of weave in and out of each other, so it feels like a really long medley at points. It's not bad, but it is kind of confusing. Sounds tiring. Uh, yeah, kind of. Uh, a little bit. They, they do, if, you, if, you, if you've just heard Big Yellow Taxi, which I think most people have at this point, uh, you will hear it. So that's what I can say. It, it's it's worth checking out to compare to Chelsea Hotel, I will say, because it is, the two occupy a very, very specific genre, hmm. which I am glad to be able to witness. Cool. With that in mind, <laughs> uh, yeah. So, check it out. I'd say check out Circle Game. How long is the show on at the Audane? Until February 15th. Until February 15th. So if you're if you're not down to venture out to the fire hall and, you know, see that Neil Young verse in person, uh, I think I might play that actually to end the show here because I think it's accurate. Uh, if you're not up for that, go by the Audane, check out some uh, some art stuff, some, some, some art things, some, some, some things of art, some objets d'art. I'm just free associating at this point. It's 84 pieces. That's pretty cool. Yeah, 84 pieces. Some of them are actually interactive, the ones that are right in the middle of the floor but again handle with care don't just like don't use your dirty hands like these students have put a lot of effort into their work and they're just really proud to have an opportunity to showcase them so yeah like i'm sure that whoever goes and see is going to make a student really happy (laughs) well i can't think of a more swelling endorsement than that (laughs) this has been the arts report on citr 101.9 fm i'm jake clark oh i'm lula sorry (laughs) margarita I'm Leah. And we'll see you next week. Cheers.